All right. So we are going to spend a little bit of time now talking about uh, speed limits and in particular slower speeds that you may have heard that in Vancouver, there is a pilot project of lowering the speed limit in some residential neighborhoods to 30 K. Uh, Spoiler alert, I live in a neighborhood where a couple of the streets are 30K. People don't go 30K. I think the whole point of that is you hope people maybe go a little bit above, but don't race down the street. But Mario Canseco with Research Co. has done a survey on this and some very interesting findings. And he joins us to talk about that. Mario, great to have you back on the show. Great to be here, Jill. Thank you. So what exactly did you ask people about slower speeds and driving habits? Well, we essentially asked everybody in British Columbia if they would like to see something similar to what Vancouver is trying to do, which is to reduce the speed limit to 30 kilometers an hour on all residential streets. And it's an interesting situation. We have 58% of BC residents who say they would definitely or probably like to see this happen. And there's also a lot of residents who are reporting speeding in their own streets. So we got 42% of BC residents who say people spinning in the street where they live is a daily event. So definitely an issue that needs to be dealt with. Uh, definitely. And I wonder too, and I don't know if you asked this, but do people think that just by simply putting up a sign saying the speed limit is now 30, uh, would that make people slow down? Well, this is one of the keys to the exercise in my mind. You know, we've had regulations, for instance, related to not using your cell phone when, while you're driving. And unless there's a very strong in, in enforcement of the law. It's very difficult for uh, drivers to change their way. So I think there's a, an, a scenario here where there's residents who look at this as a good idea, having signs, changing some of the guidelines, but it's ultimately in the hands of the drivers themselves and of the police if they see them doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Exactly. And we're talking about residential streets for the most part. So it's not as though anybody expects that there are going to be police officers stationed on every corner watching for people speeding. Uh, we kind of take a leap there and think and hope that people realize it's a residential neighborhood. There are people or pedestrians and kids and dogs and it's not a great place to speed. Well, it's an issue that usually happens even more in the summer. You know, people have the uh, chance to drive with natural light for longer. Uh, they tend to speed through school zones as well. So it's one of those issues where it really uh, needs to be something that the drivers themselves realize. And, and there's definitely a situation here where residents of many municipalities, this isn't something that happens only in the urban areas, are, are saying there are people within my street who are going faster than the speed limit. So it's a good start. I don't think it's going to solve everything immediately. But the fact that we're stalling this and that Vancouver is going to start doing this in September uh, might be something that is helpful down the road. And the survey also, uh, so this was 800 adults in BC. Did you find a difference between, say, Metro Vancouver and farther outside in a more rural area? Oh, definitely. You know, one of the shocking findings is uh, that uh, when we ask people if there are drivers who speed on their streets, uh, Fraser Valley came out in first place with 54%, then Northern British Columbia at 50%. So we always think about Vancouver and Metro Vancouver as the areas where the drivers tend to be terrible. It's a situation that it's all over the place. You know, Metro Vancouver actually came in in last place at 39% when it came to people who see somebody speeding every day. So it's a good start. I think it's an interesting situation uh, that City Council in Vancouver has decided to do this. And, and to me, one of the uh, issues that I want to be tracking is how is this going to affect people who live in those areas? If you have those residential streets where you're bringing the speed limit down from 50, from, from 50 kilometers an hour to 30, are the drivers happy? Is the community feeling better? That's the key. 
if that happens, then we might see a situation where this type of regulation is implemented in other parts of the province. Uh, interesting when the question, too, is to people, have you, do you see speeding uh, drivers ignoring the speed limit uh, at least once a day, or do you, do you see this? Because I, I wouldn't imagine anyone is reporting somebody going 10K over the limit, because that's probably what most drivers are doing. When, when people are responding to this saying, yeah, I see people speeding every day, we're talking about people who are driving at such a speed, you notice them on the street because they stick out. Right. And I think this is something that is quite crucial. You know, there's that situation of somebody who maybe lives close to you who goes too fast or a specific car that is pretty noisy because it's going higher than it should. Um, we do tend to remember those emotional moments when we're in our streets. And, and I think you know, part of the situation is maybe there's somebody who has kids, maybe there's somebody who lives in an area that, that should be a little bit quieter. Um, you start to remember those things. But like we said before, it's impossible to enforce it. You know, we, we can't have somebody in every single street corner trying to figure out how fast people are going. I mean, we have a little bit of that surveillance in a way, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, areas that are a, a bridges in, in the urban areas. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's not an easy situation. I think it's a, it's a good start and I think people like it. Uh, I think it's just a matter of figuring out down the road if it works for the people who might be affected by it. Uh, interesting when you mentioned too that people have more natural light so they're likely driving more or they're on the streets a bit more or spend more time driving um, the other side to that too is uh, there are more cars with their windows down so if you're someone like me uh, that likes to yell at the drivers as they screech by or as they roll through the stop signs there's a better chance they will hear you and know that you are not pleased with their driving behavior it's definitely something that can happen more during the summer months and you know, it, it, to me, it, it's it's ultimately about establishing that sense of a, a community. You know, we have so many bylaws, so many things, so many regulations, and uh, sometimes we forget that this is the way we're supposed to be driving. I always say to to my friends, you know, drive like the ICBC person who is checking if you should have a license is next to you at all times. That's the way to go back to that situation where everybody's respectful and nobody's uh, doing stuff that they're not supposed to be doing behind the wheel. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be something if, if everybody did that? Um, you also asked people or you took a look at uh, if others would like to see the pilot project in Vancouver in their community and got some interesting results to that. Yes, we see a high level of support. There's 58% of BC residents who would like this to happen. The level of support is highest uh, in the regions in Vancouver Island, uh, which is quite interesting because it's not as if you have a lot of roads there where you can go super fast, but I think there's a little bit of that situation on the, of the residential areas and, and specific drivers who think they can do anything they want. Um, also with British Columbia, it's age 35 to 54, and women, 63% say this is a good idea. So, Again, we start to see a little bit of this gender war when it comes to how fast you're driving. It's the women who are saying this is a great idea and the men are not so sure. And what about on political lines? Because you also ask people on their their political leanings uh, how they would vote and how they feel about this. Well, uh, there's definitely a higher level of support from people who voted for the NDP or the Greens in the last election, 74% and 72% respectively. A little bit lower with liberals at 60%, but it's still a majority of residents who voted for the BC Liberals who say this is something they would like to see happen. Um, because of the situation that we have right now, uh, there's not a lot of people who voted for the BC Conservatives in the last election. We tend to see some situations when it comes to driving and regulations and rules. Conservative voters tend to be more on the fence and say we don't need more regulations. We want this to be a little bit freer. Um, but there's not 
too many voters from the last election left over, so we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Very, very true. I wonder, too, and you kind of touched on this and the idea of enforcement. And again, maybe it's because people know that in residential neighborhoods, there aren't police officers as much as uh, I mean, I'm always shocked. I drive over the Granville Street Bridge quite a bit and there is often a speed trap on the south end of the bridge. It's just you never speed on that bridge. Not that you should speed anyway, but it's just in in, anybody I think that drives over that bridge, you should have it in your brain. Never speed over that bridge because there's a very high chance you're going to get caught. Whereas Perhaps people think, well, in residential neighborhoods, it's okay to go a little bit faster because there's less of a chance of getting caught. And that is definitely one of the issues. You know, there's uh, changes in the way you, you, you drive. And I think part of the situation here is going to be the effect that the signage can have. If you have all of those signs going and reminding people that they shouldn't go as fast as they were doing before, uh, it might make changes. I think it's definitely something that we need to analyze down the road. If, if there's a situation where having the sign changes the way people behave and drive, then it's working. If not, then we'll have to do something else. <laughs> and I guess, too, we could look at what's happened because I think it was, you know, near Maine and Hastings was one of the first areas where the speed limit was lower to 30 uh, because there's a ton of jaywalking in that area. It's a very busy area. And in that case, it's actually printed on the streets. So if you're driving there, you see it. Not only do you see the road signs that say 30, you see it under your car. You see it on the road in front of you as a reminder, stop it. And there's a police station right there. So I wonder if that's had more of an effect than it might have by putting up signs in residential neighborhoods. Absolutely. That has worked very well. I I, I walked through that area many times and, and it's an important reminder for some of those drivers who are coming off streets where they can go a little bit uh, higher than they usually would. And, of course, being close to the police station, you're a little more careful. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Anything else uh, stick out for you or in your mind from this uh, this survey or this poll? Well, I I thought it was interesting that... uh, that when city council in Vancouver decided to do this, the vote was unanimous. You know, we've heard a lot of discussions about how it's a very different council and there are so many parties represented and so many people who want to do things. And um, the fact that they all said, well, this is a good idea. Let's see where it takes us. It was definitely eye-catching. And I think uh, in a certain way, public opinion is on their side, not only in the city of Vancouver, but also in our parts of BC where they would like to see some of these changes implemented. All right. Interesting findings for sure. Mario, thanks so much. Great to chat with you again. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Well, one of the main campaign promises of our current government was bringing in $10 a day daycare. And we've seen some movement in that uh, there is the prototype. There were some families that basically won the lottery and got spots in some of the daycares that are testing this. But we've been told as well, it's going to take quite some time before an entire system like that can be implemented. Well, Sharon Gregson has been a longtime advocate of $10 a day daycare of childcare and joins us on the line now. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning, Jill. Where are we as far as opening up more spaces, uh, trying to make childcare uh, more affordable for people in BC? Well, there are three things government has to do to actually build a new childcare system. They have to make childcare affordable and they're moving well in that direction. They have to create more spaces, which is the biggest challenge and and seems to be the the biggest stumbling block at the moment. And then they have to invest in early childhood educators, because if you make childcare affordable and more available, but don't have anybody to work in childcare, then you've got a problem. So um, they're starting to do the investment in early childhood educators, and we need to see more of that. 
And you mentioned spaces, and that's one I think uh, we, 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 we tend to to look at, but uh, not really see. How do you do that? How do you create more spaces when we're dealing with, with limited space? Well, part of the problem is that for the, for the last couple of decades, new spaces have only been created by entrepreneurs or not-for-profits sort of putting up their hand and getting a little bit of a grant and creating some spaces. So one-off situations. You can't build a, a whole system just on little one-offs. And so uh, we've been encouraging government to start to work more effectively with its public partners, particularly school districts, trying to work with public land, elementary schools in particular, to build more spaces. Because, of course, the provincial government doesn't operate childcare spaces. It needs others to take the money that they're offering and renovate or build new spaces. And that's happening quite slowly at the moment um, because we're not really leveraging the the ability of our uh, schools to to make more childcare spaces. And, and is that because of red tape or why is it you think? And I, and I ask that because I have a, a very good friend who who deals with this. So part of her job is creating more spaces. She her Part of her job is also telling parents, you can put your kid on the list. You're never getting a space because you're so far down the list and there's nothing I can do. But she tells me the most bizarre stories of red tape and trying to oh, access space, but being denied. I mean, one was it was an adjoining high school to an elementary school and she was told, oh, it's inappropriate. We can't have elementary school kids in the high school, and it was denied when it was a perfectly good space. Mm-hmm. So, one of the challenges of childcare, and, and honestly, there are many, is that childcare right now is spread between three government ministries. It's a, the licensing part of it is in the Ministry of Health, the early learning part is in the Ministry of Education, and the operating part is in the Ministry for Children and Family Development. Clearly, that makes no sense. All of childcare needs to move into the Ministry of Education. That's where childcare is delivered across most of Canada and, in fact, across most of the developed world. And so that move needs to happen so that we can start looking at childcare from a systemic, universal, entitlement kind of point of view rather than these one off little things that we've got happening, silos we've got happening now. So of course, we do want childcare to be high quality, so we need to have standards. Um, but yes, if we said every elementary school across the province was going to have childcare, you know, a second story on a ch- on an elementary school building or a custom modular building on public land, those are the kinds of ways that we start to create significantly new spaces and uh, start to meet the needs of families. Uh, I hear from a lot of families as well saying uh, uh, that the $10 a day model is great, but also saying we just want a space. We're happy to pay for it. We just want to find a space. Uh, Is there a place, do you think, for for not only a a universal type system, but what about industry and businesses coming into this? And it wouldn't be $10 a day, but if they were offering up spaces uh, linked to the business or a part of the business uh, and for their workers? 
Well, there's a role for everybody to be involved. And for businesses, it really means they need to make sure they're paying their taxes so that um, government can actually build the childcare system. But let's remember, we've got a city like Surrey that is bursting at the seams in its education system, in its elementary schools and high schools. And we don't say to businesses in Surrey, oh, we want you to open up a school to start to alleviate some of the pressure on the public system. What we say is that we expect the provincial government, the Ministry of Education, to meet the educational needs of kids and and youth in Surrey. So, yes, there's a role for business to play, um, but it's only really big businesses or um, industry, like hospitals and universities, who actually have enough staff who keep having babies to be able to manage a childcare system. Most small businesses or even medium-sized businesses don't have enough people who keep having babies to fill a childcare centre. And you mentioned this as well, the the difference, uh, unregulated or licensed care. Uh, Is there a role for that as well in that it seems like even the word unregulated brings up, it seems to have a negative connotation to it. But is there, I mean, there are, there is a huge number of kids that are uh, cared for by family members or in a smaller, uh, someone's home who's decided to be a child care provider. Is there a role for that as well? Absolutely. And it's completely legal for uh, an adult to care for um, two children who are not related to them by blood or marriage um, without needing to do any paperwork at all. But once you start caring for more than two children, it is very appropriate that there should be some licensing involved so that minimal health and safety standards are met. Um, It's whether it's a licensed home childcare or a licensed group childcare, uh, it's you know we we have standards for who's educating our elementary school children. We should have standards as well for who's caring for our youngest and potentially most vulnerable children because they can't talk to you at the end of the day and tell you what kind of day they had sometimes. So licensing is very important. Those minimal health and safety standards have to be met. Uh, It seems like we have been talking about this uh, for quite some time. Uh, We hear from parents often that are stuck in this uh, place where they either have to uh, find the money to hire uh, a nanny or find some other creative solution. Are things changing? Yes, they are. They are changing. Um, But let's remember, this is just year one Excuse me, of a 10-year plan. And so really, they're not moving fast enough for for any of those families who are on waiting lists. And that's why it's so important that we continue to make sure government knows childcare is a priority. Government, of course, has many different issues that they are they're pressured to deal with. We have to make sure childcare stays at the top of the list. And so I'd encourage all your listeners who are challenged by childcare, living the childcare dilemma, um, to go to tenaday.ca, sign a petition, help us make sure the momentum continues to put pressure on government to build that $10 a day system that will benefit not just the families, but also our economy. All right. So we'll have to leave it there. Sharon, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Bye-bye. Talking about the idea of short-term rentals. And Pete Fry yesterday brought up uh, some interesting points uh, when we talked about uh, the fact that council has decided to loosen the rules a little bit for one particular developer. Ani got permission to operate about 20 short-term rental units in one of its downtown buildings. And Pete Fry arguing that in giving Ani that permission, it would actually result in more rental 
housing being built. Not everyone agrees, although he said there hasn't been much backlash to that idea. But let's bring in Melissa DiGenova. She's an NPA Vancouver City Councillor and joins us on the line now. Councillor, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Jill. Uh, what is your take on this in that uh, some would call this a double standard? Uh, Pete Fry again was on yesterday saying he doesn't see it that way. How do you see this uh, deal when it comes to short-term rentals? Well, unless there's more density being given uh, to allow for more affordable rentals here, which I don't understand to be the case, I think that this is just a way to get rid of that DCL waiver. And while I, I understand and I, I think it's very it's an interesting concept to move forward with the idea of looking at developers taking on 10 to 20 units and giving them licenses for short-term rental if they have a second company. Uh, The average homeowner is not allowed to do that right now. They're not allowed to rent their secondary basement suite out in their home. So I think that, you know, to allow a developer to do that, and, you know, my background is in private development and working for the nonprofit sector. I think not only is it a double standard, but, I mean, hearing from people last term, even when we went through the short-term license agreement with short-term rental, they want to stay in a neighborhood usually if they're booking short-term rental. They want that real uh, neighborhood feel. Um, so I'm not sure that this is going to give them that. It's, it's kind of a hotel, but not quite a hotel. Um, I think that there's also concern that it will take away from the rental housing market because there's no extra density here. And there's nothing saying that the developer has to take any of this money that they may get from short-term rental and put it towards affordable rents. Uh, Because wasn't the whole point or one of the reasons given as to why the city cracked down on people uh, operating Airbnbs or other short-term rentals in their private homes was because it was taking stock that could be long-term housing out of that pool. Uh, Doesn't this kind of do the same thing? Well, yes. And and I I certainly uh, will be asking staff for an answer to that question because we've never received the number as to after licensing, how many of those suites that were weren't licensed, and that's the reason we put this program into place, uh, went back and were returned to the long-term rental market. That being said, uh, I put a motion in, and it won't be heard for a few weeks now, but I'd prefer to see a nightly tax charge, like Seattle. They charge a tax on their short-term rentals, so if you were renting for $100 a night coming in, it would probably be 110 that extra $10 would go to the city of Vancouver into an affordable housing reserve fund. I think that would be a better way to do it, but not just for developers and not because of the DTL waiver. I think that should be for everyone citywide because we hear from people who say they can't long-term rent their basement because they, you know, they have parents who come into town, help them with childcare, and they use it as a bit of a mortgage helper when people in their own families aren't using that space, uh, when their own kids from university aren't coming home to use that space. So I think, you know, it, it certainly, um, hearing from the people who, who truly used it as a mortgage helper, and there were many who lined up at city council last term, I think they'd be quite disheartened to know that they're not allowed to rent their secondary basement suite unless they rent to an adult child for a dollar a year. I think we've talked about this before, but there's lots of ways that, you you know, you can kind of skirt the rules or the system here. Um, the issue that I have with it exclusively is I, I don't think it's fair um, to allow developers to do something that we're not allowing homeowners to do. I'd also like to see a cap 
on the amount per neighborhood. If we're truly going to talk about the effect on the long-term rental market, no different than taxi licenses, I think we should have a cap on the number of licenses in the city of Vancouver and ask our staff to thoughtfully uh, consider that by neighborhood. And I'll be putting that motion forward in the next coming weeks before we even put forward. Do you think, though, there might be some that would come out and say, because a lot of people have been calling into this program saying it's it's my private property. Uh, I shouldn't be forced to be a long term landlord. And like you said, if I want to rent out and get a bit of extra revenue on a suite that my parents stay at, my kids stay at, that I can't I don't want to rent it out full time. I mean, the, the flip side of that is those suites are now sitting empty. They're, they're, they, they probably haven't been returned to the long term pool. Uh, but if you cap it, do you not then exclude a, a certain number of people? who just didn't get in line in time? Well, I think that this is why I ask our staff to be thoughtful about their approach and and go away and look at a program. Uh, That being said, a cap on the amount of units would at least be more than what what we're allowing homeowners in their secondary suites right now, which is none. Right. So I'd, I'd rather maybe we do a pilot project. I'm not telling staff to do what to do. I'd like to see, though, especially if we're going to move forward with this. And, you know, I, I appreciate uh, Councillor Fry uh, putting this forward. At the same time, though, is this a fancy way to get rid of the DCL waiver, which he's, you know, he said very publicly he's not in favor of. Uh, I'm not sure. But that being said, there's nothing else there uh, to make sure, make sure that there's those checks and balances or affordable rental, but there is, as you said, a double standard to give developers, you know, um, when there's optics that they, you know, that, that they have a lot of money, um, 20, 30 short-term rental units, but, you know, a family who's really just struggling to pay their mortgage uh, and needs that extra rental space because they can't afford childcare, you know, doesn't want to boot out a long-term tenant every time their university student comes home. Um, you know, and we've we've heard from tearful people at council last term who said, this is how I pay for my kids' university tuition. And then they come home at Christmas or in the summer. Um, so I'm looking at some different ways that we can make sure that we consider rental and also at the same time consider that opportunity for short-term rental. I also think that it's really, really important um, to mention that, that, you know, it's about fairness. And last time we saw it with Vision Vancouver, pitting the renter against the homeowner, I don't want to see that anymore. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Councillor DiGenova, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, normally this would have just been a quiet passing of a motion at a small council that really doesn't get a ton of attention outside city limits uh, happening in Victoria. Uh, but certainly this story got a lot of attention. It blew up on social media. A lot of people were angry that a Victoria City Councillor put forward a request asking the military to fund the cost of policing events such as Remembrance Day events, Victoria Day events. And if that wasn't offensive enough to some, the fact that all of these remarks were made on the day of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, well, that just added to the backlash and to the outrage over what was said by this Victoria City Councillor, Ben Isett. Joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about this is Chris Sims. She's the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're generally talking taxes, but today we're talking more about this because, Chris, uh, you're also the daughter of a veteran and you've made a few comments on this. 
Yes, I have. Uh, I'm also the granddaughter of a veteran. Like many in my generation, I'm in my early 40s now. Most of our grandfathers uh, participated in the Second World War and fought the Nazis in the Second World War. I know that's the case on both sides of my family and my husband's family. And so that's where you really have to start giving your head a shake. When you start hearing from elected city councillors complaining about footing the bill for very low-key, modest uh, expenses for things like Remembrance Day and D-Day ceremonies. And I was particularly irked because this city councillor claimed to be fighting for taxpayers. No, full stop. Uh, $15,000 is a drop in the bucket when you compare what kind of sacrifices these men and women made, especially with landings on things like D-Day. Canadians, of course, know that more than 5,000 Canadians died in the Battle of Normandy. Died. That's, That's bigger than the population of many towns in British Columbia. And that was just one part of the campaign. So to have this city councillor who, one, is a historian who specializes in that era of history, two, claim to be fighting for taxpayers, and three, decides to put this motion forward on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, um, I think that insults the intelligence and respect of most common sense people. And so that is why we're speaking up on this. Uh, and even in his response when he was called out on this and asked to him- explain himself, uh, he responded by saying, it would have been better to have done it on another day. Day. Uh, I have to agree with that. Seems like a bit of an understatement, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that takes away from it. It's still you're still uh, being. It's it appears you know he, that he's being quite petty in he is. in doing this. This is small and mean minded and cheap. And I don't care. Yes, it was bad timing on the day because anybody who happened to catch their eyes across any screened surface, uh, be it your iPhone or your TV or maybe even a newspaper knew it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and we were commemorating and celebrating those veterans who are, we are very fortunate to still have with us. Uh, they're dwindling by the day, Second World War veterans. And so he's a smart man. He knew exactly when and where he was saying this, but he said it anyway. But apart from that, why say it? $15,000. To put that in perspective, Prince George is spending $23,000 to put ID tags on their garbage cans. <laughs> For real. And he's complaining about 15000 You know, it's, it's really, really small potatoes. And I think for most people, um, they're happy to pay that tiny fraction in their property taxes. And further, if they get it from D&D or Veterans Affairs Canada in Ottawa, that's still taxpayers. If you're geographically sitting in Victoria, it's still taxpayers paying for those ceremonies and helping to have those commemorations. Just because you're paying it on your federal taxes and not your property taxes, what's the difference? The difference here is that he doesn't want to have responsibility for it as a politician, and I think that speaks volumes. Uh, Charles Adler tweeted uh, on uh, June 7th uh, in response, because as we know, this took off on social media, uh, in response uh, at uh, Councillor Ben Isat saying uh, his conspiratorial quackery gives further evidence to my prop 
proposition that Ben Isaac is a political kook and then goes on to say that linking uh, Brad West, uh, the mayor of Poco, you and Charles Adler and other critics to the Nazis uh, and then goes on to say, Councillor, thousands of Canadian boys buried in France have paid in full for Remembrance Day ceremonies. Uh, did he link you guys to Nazis? It was super weird. Uh, ben is it in a Twitter response or like a, it was basically a statement he posted online. I still can't quite understand it. It included a a big screed against what he called, if I paraphrase properly, um, conservative, small C conservative corporate media. I will point out that the CBC was one of the reporters that was really uh, pointing this out, and he's calling that conspiratorial conservative corporate media. So I found that eyebrow raising. <laughs> uh, and he also put in this strange image um, from propaganda used in the Second World War. I actually have a book based on it. It's fascinating from a communications perspective. But then he said that it's part of fighting alt-right and fascism. Hmm. You know, it, for, you know, speaking for myself, um, I was supporting paying a tiny pittance to commemorate uh, veterans of the Second World War and those who died during the Second World War, particularly during the D-Day landings, literally fighting fascists. That's who they were fighting. They were fighting Nazis and saying we should commemorate those people. He was arguing not paying taxpayer dollars in Victoria to commemorate those people. So that was really head-scratching, and I think that's kind of what set Charles Adler off on that one. <laughs> and to be clear, um, I come at this from a personal perspective as well, not just as a, as a taxpayer representative, uh, but I also uh, was the director of communications for Aaron O'Toole when he was Veterans Affairs Minister. And so I've been very, very fortunate and privileged to speak with many veterans, including Second World War veterans. And we know what these ceremonies mean to these folks. My grade four teacher was a Second World War veteran who was fighting in the Pacific. I had an entire year of what is Remembrance Day teaching. And so we can't say enough about how much these ceremonies mean to these folks. I, I totally agree with you. And it even goes uh, for me in this going off to, off this story a little bit. I almost feel like it shouldn't be a day off school because if it, yeah. if it wasn't, I mean, that would uh, a lot of people take it as a day off, uh, considered a long weekend, which I think is is a bit offensive as well. But if kids were in school and part of the ceremonies, I think would probably be a better way to remember and pay tribute than taking the day off. And it depends on the school district. Some school districts still, which is interesting, have school on that day for that exact reason. It's fascinating you bring that up, but that's exactly the argument. They will often say things like, this way if they're in school, depending on where they are across Canada, they will then commemorate it in their own way at the school facility. Whereas if you have them out of school, there's always a chance that they might not go to Cenotaph and they might not do that. I will also point out when it comes to this city councillor, um, I was really surprised because I had never paid attention to what he was saying before because I live over here in the Fraser Valley, uh, he also apparently had a problem with trying to host the Invictus Games, calling it something akin to um, glorifying militarism. The Invictus Games, Invictus means invincible, and Invictus Games is uh, special games. It's similar to, you know, the Olympics or something like that. It's a sporting event for wounded veterans. So for folks who are suffering from severe uh, uh, mental illnesses uh, based on their service um, to all the way to things like WMP, double amputations. 
And it was started by Prince Harry, who, of course, served in theater in Afghanistan. And I can tell you, that is something we got a lot of mail about, was the Invictus Games, because it's really something for many of these Canadian Armed Forces veterans and police veterans, in many cases, to aim for. And it's so meaningful to them. And to, to have that referred to as, you know, glorifying war or the military, it's, it's really sad. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, a bit of a head scratcher for sure. Um, ben Isaac said on Friday on Global, uh, he apologized for the timing of the proposal to have the games paid for, but he didn't really step back. And you made the interesting point. It's not as it's still taxpayers that would be mm-hmm. paying for it. He didn't step back. He still says that Ottawa should foot part of the bill. So he, it appears that he's sticking to that idea. He is, and it's disappointing. I will give credit where credit is due. Uh, Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps, uh, whom we disagree with on lots of things sometimes, uh, she didn't vote in favor of this thing. And she also voted in favor of hosting the Invictus Games. Um, So she's on the right side of this argument. Uh, And the other city councillors who had went along with him uh, backed away quickly, including, I will point out, uh, an NDP candidate for the upcoming federal election, whose riding happens to be inclusive of CFB Esquimalt, which, of course, is the Pacific uh, fleet uh, right there. That's their base. Uh, And so it's interesting to see some politicians realizing the mistake and saying this is bad and we shouldn't do this. Um, But he is sticking to it. So the idea that he somehow apologized, eh, I think he he says he regrets the timing. But he's an intelligent man. He's got a PhD studying history. He knew full well his timing when he did this. And uh, to be clear, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So at the time this was brought forward, it was supported by councillors in Victoria, Jeremy Loveday, Sarah Potts, Marianne Alto and Laurel Collins. Um, Mayor Lisa Helps, councillors Jeff Young and Charlene Thornton-Joe are the three that voted against it. And as you mentioned again, Collins, who's going to be the candidate in uh, in the federal election, uh, then pulled support. I think realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the side of this that I want to be on. Uh, what do you say, though, to his his constant his theme on this his talking point is that he's standing up for taxpayers uh, we disagree uh the canadian taxpayers federation disagrees uh we understand that we need to spend taxpayers money on some things what we're against is wasteful spending of taxpayers money that is why we give out those teddy awards every single year to point out wasteful spending. We point out the fact that some politicians jet around the planet constantly, and $15,000, when you look at it, is really a drop in the bucket. And then when you peel it back and look at what it's for and what it means for people, oh, man, criticizing spending a small amount of taxpayers' money on a couple of ceremonies a year to honor veterans, that's at the bottom of our fight list. Um, We disagree. Uh, And most of our supporters, we think, would agree with us here. This is a good a good expenditure of money, and it means so much to people. And different, too, because we're talking about Remembrance Day, and, and I find, too, that, that this kind of got muddied in that we're talking about Remembrance Day ceremonies. Mm-hmm. This isn't a party, and, and some have yeah. compared it to Canada Day celebrations. They're very different events. They're extremely different events. Uh, to not to, I will put a point on it. Remembrance Day, for example, federally, is held at the National War Memorial. Okay, That was unveiled in the late 1930s by then uh, the Queen Mother and her husband, the King. That was just as we were on the brink of the Second World War. They have the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier right there. It is a gravesite. It is an extremely solemn place. 
And so what happens every year on November the 11th uh, in allied countries is basically a big memorial service, a big funeral service, a moment for us to all step back, be silent and think. And to do that across Canada, especially in our capital cities, in a beautiful place like Victoria, is very important. And for your listeners who don't know, uh, the cenotaph in Victoria is right at the foot and the corner of the lawn of the legislature in Victoria. So it's already a very meaningful place for a monument. It's actually very close to the statue of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. And so they're already used to holding those ceremonies there. So you're right, it's not like <laughs> Canada Day or having a huge festival outside this is a solemn service for people to honor their service and so to pick fights on this stuff is really poor taste and we need to also stress that if if folks are upset by this they need to say so because it was pointed out to me several times that this councillor was elected with a huge number of votes and Mm -hmm. if he if he represents his riding or his district in city politics Man, that really makes me scratch my head that folks agree with this sort of sentiment. No matter which side of the political perspective you're on, I want to stress this. Um, There are current federal NDP members of parliament who fully support Esquimalt and members of the armed forces and veterans who wouldn't say things like this. And so this isn't a conservative versus NDP thing. I think this is a matter of judgment and taste. All right. We will leave it there. Chris Sims, thank you so much. Thank you for caring.